coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Even though, you know, I, I couldn't even pretend to walk through or know what it's like to have substance use disorder and, and the pain that comes with that, you, what I could empathize with was I'm hearing that you're tormented. I'm hearing torment and you want out and you cannot figure out how to get out. And this thing, recovery, whatever this means, whatever your journey has been, what you found helps get your relief, helps you live the life you want, help, you know, and helps you take the steps that you need to take in order to get that. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowblassingame, and I am your host today. We have my girl, Christiana. In early 2019, Christiana was tapped to co-create the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast with a background, not only as a marketer and project manager, but as a professional dancer and songwriter, she knew she would cut recordings and set up processes. So that's where she started over the last two, almost three years, Christiana and I have developed the show, you know, and love today. It has been an incredible journey. In a bonus episode during season three, Christiana shared about Haven Dance Company choreographing their video, The Story of the Struggle on Addiction. Christiana and her husband, Roger, recently welcomed their beautiful baby girl, Jordan Cash, and enjoy spending time with their beloved pup, Noel Hope. Christiana Kimmick, you know her, you love her in the first two seasons after the episodes, she and I went over Every episode, she has produced this podcast and made it what it is today. It would not be here without her. And I am so, so deeply and truly grateful for her commitment to making me presentable to the general public and um, helping get this podcast to where it is today. It has been such an amazing journey. And today, Christiana and I got to chat about her background, her childhood, her trauma, and what it was like coming in as a quote unquote normie, what we call people without substance use disorders, uh, coming in as a normie to work in the treatment field with no background in this topic and how it changed her life, how it changed it for the better, how she was able to find her own recovery and her own story and her own voice while watching others do the same. And it has been a beautiful journey for me to watch. I'm so excited for you to hear about it. Um, Great topic on uh, trauma, on therapy, on religion, Christianity, and how that's shaped her journey. And I throw in my, you know, struggles with that and, and to try to um, add some relatability to those who don't relate to the religious piece of it. But I think we can all find the similarities in this story and in this conversation. So please look for the similarities, not the differences. That's what Christiana did. And it has changed her life. And here is the story of how that happened. All right. Episode 132. Let's do this. listening to the courage to change a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. 
Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Is it not okay to have my nose against the mic when I'm recording? Wait, is this okay? I'm going to tell the producer. Should I not breathe into it too? (laughs) Welcome to the Courage to Change, Karistiana Kimmick. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Season three, we're wrapping up. This is very timely and, uh, and, and, you know, perfect timing, perfect timing. I'm excited. I'm really excited. I wasn't sure if this was going to happen or not. And I just kind of had to like surrender it. And here it is. Here we are. Here we are. Theme theme of my life. Surrender. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about it. Um, it's one of the themes. Why don't you start? Where were you born? What did your family of origin look like? Well, do should we go over a hair picture first? Oh, do I have a hair picture? Oh, this is what happens when you interview someone who works on your team. <laughs> they're like, you're like, hey, let's just like you're this. fucking it up. <laughs> Hey, hey, you're fucking it up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess Um, we should. Okay. So I just like, wow, full disclosure, this isn't even the worst. So I really wanted to find a hair picture of me around 13 whenever there was a, I mean, the worst haircut of my entire life. Probably I avoided the camera during that time because I cannot find that picture. But what you are seeing is my sisters and I, I'm the oldest of three. Uh, and you know, my mom just went to town with oh, the yeah. curler and the yep. bangs and the yep. feathering and the yep. every, and it's just, you know, we have a million of these photos and, and, uh, I just pledged to not do that to my daughter. Yeah, we have these two <laughs> probably going to end up doing it anyway, but <laughs> this what is a, really good. Isn't this it great? Is really this is really, and you know, what's funny is that, so we're, you're a little bit older than I am, but like we're, we raised in the, in the same time period. Mm. My mom did the same dresses, like the, the dress (laughs) that, uh, I think it's Shannon is wearing. She, she, the, the lace that goes across the top from shoulder to shoulder, that, that type and the, and the, the shoulders, puffy shoulder sleeves that you're wearing. My mom, it was like every photo shoot we had, we looked like we were coming from an English tea party. Yes. You know, that was so our style too. And my mom, I remember, uh, it was probably around when I was in elementary school. She got hooked up with all these other moms who did these things called dress parties. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, you know, it was probably thinking back to it wholesale, you know, dresses and, and people were able to buy these at the time, beautiful dresses for their kids for, you know, not a lot yet wholesale yeah. prices. And so we'd host them at our house and oh. my, my closet was filled with them and, and I was such a tomboy at heart. And so <laughs> I was really obedient. So I'd wear these dresses because my mom wanted me to. So I'd be like, okay, I'll do that. But I just was like, oh, I'd be itching to get them off and just get into some jeans and yep. a t-shirt. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember that well thinking like, really? Okay, fine. <laughs> um, so you 
who grew up in you. So you're, you grew, you were born in Southern California. You're the oldest mm-hmm. of three girls and dad traveled a lot. Mom was a stay at home mom. And you were raised in what you would call a Christian household. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I don't know what you'd call it now. I mean, it's just conventional Christian household. I mean, we grew up going to church every Sunday. Uh, I went to private school and actually did really, really well in that school because they had a great creative program. I think it's actually still around to this day. Um, but I remember just absolutely thriving in that school. They had things that you could plug into all the time. They had spelling bees, speech meets, um, poetry meets. So like you would, you would literally write poetry and submit it as this contest. And, um, I didn't win every single one, but I won a lot of them or got runner up or got moved to like regionals or, you know, it, it, I just, I felt like I just was hitting my stride. They were talent shows and positive um, feedback reinforcement. Yeah. It, it was really amazing, but there was healthy competition too. You know, it was, it was neat. Cause you, you'd submit within your peers and work with your peers to do things. And, um, I remember just really thriving and, uh, it was a Christian school, so I didn't know anything different. You know, I, I just, we would go to chapel. I think I remember going once a week. I could be wrong, but you know, we were taught scripture in school and everyone around me, you know, it, we, we all believed the same thing. And, and, you know, it, so it, I felt like, oh, we were all the same. Yeah. I felt like I fit in. I felt like, well, this is, I guess what everybody does, you know, when you're a kid, you don't, if you don't see anything any different, you don't know that there are other people that have different belief systems or aren't being raised or their school doesn't look like this. So that was what I, that was when I knew until I was about 10 and we moved and I went to a public school. So, and, and for some color, um, your, your parents' marriage was struggling at certain times in your childhood until eventually, uh, they decided to split. When did you start to see that? And how was there any conflict with the quote unquote Christian household? Like, were there any issues where you're like, wait, this doesn't make sense, or this isn't supposed to be like this or any of that? Yeah. I think the first memory that I have of realizing something was wrong was I was in, I think it was first grade. And one of my, my classmates, parents were getting a divorce and he was very upset about it. Mm. So we'd gone to hug him because he was crying. And uh, I asked him, how did, how did you know that they were going to get a divorce? Cause he was saying, I, I knew this was going to happen. This poor little first grader. And, and uh, he said they were fighting a lot. Mm. And I immediately got hit with fear and was like, my parents fight a lot. And I remember going home and asking my mom, mom, are you and dad going to get a divorce because you fight a lot? Oh, wow. Because I can't remember his name, but so-and-so's mom and dad did. And she said, oh, no, 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 honey. No, that that won't happen. And I remember not believing her. Mm. And I just felt, I think I can, I, I have always remembered feeling like the weight of the world was on my shoulders, feeling like I, I, not knowing it at the time, but I felt very deeply. I could walk into a room and feel everyone's emotions and Mm -hmm. didn't know how to divide my own from somebody else's. Mm -hmm. Like I'm feeling this way, but I'm also taking on this person's feelings because I'm picking up what's in the room. And so, you know, for a lot, when when kids' parents fight, it's very, very difficult. I, I think the difference I could see with myself and my sisters as, as our parents would fight because it did escalate 
there were never any, there was never any domestic violence, thank God, but it was a very tumultuous environment at home. And I, I remember my sisters being upset, but they could kind of disassociate from it. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was, I was always monitoring. So it was like, I was constantly aware. I couldn't just like check out. I was constantly aware. I was hearing everything. I was processing everything. I would, you know, try and keep my sisters away because they were younger and I didn't want them to hear it too. So I'd actively put them in my room and make up, you know, Hey, I need you to write a play. Can you write a play? And then you need to perform it for me at this time. And and so it would keep them focused and interested. But I do remember, um, you know, we'd be at school and they'd be teaching us about kindness and patience and, you know, they're teaching you how to like play with your siblings and, you know, these are the fruits of the spirit. It's kindness, joy, peace, patience. And I remember just being like, I need to teach my mom and dad. You know, and I'd come home and I'd be like, I feel like and I learned about this thing called it. kindness. <laughs> and they'd be like, okay. <laughs> oh God. They're like, thanks, Christiana. <laughs> Have you learned about this thing called um, division of labor? Did they teach you that at school? It's great for marriage. <laughs> that is actually, it's fantastic. It's for fantastic for marriage. <laughs> it's interesting. You and I, um, you know, for people who don't know, Christiana has been, uh, she and I started this podcast in 2018, 19, 2019, 2019, mm-hmm. In, and to work with me having no like legitimate exposure to, you know, intensive therapy or recovery or any of those things, like very cursory, you know, probably like what most people see in movies and that kind of thing, or like hear about from other people. Interesting. There's some, th- there's some parallels in our childhoods, you know, some very different, but some, one of the parallels, we're both the oldest of three girls mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, the spacing is pretty similar within a couple of years. And we feel very similar. We felt very similarly in our homes about our siblings. Now I did a shit ass job. Like you're, you're like, well, I'm going to send you to your room to write a play. Let me just say that I didn't do such a good job of parenting, very questionable parenting from the oldest sibling on my end. However, I did relate to the feelings that you describe of like, feeling very responsible, feeling very like awareness and looking, looking, you know, thinking about them as my little babies, because I was such a big part of, you know, changing diapers. And, and, and I was, you know, a a kid when they were, came into my life. And I think it's interesting, you know, sometimes I don't know how much that is like personality or experience or culture or any of those things, but there's something about being I don't know if it's the oldest of three girls or just the oldest, but there is that feeling of responsibility that feels like the weight of the world in many yeah. ways. And in my case, they, I very much, um, I remember thinking if I drink and I use, I can't, people can't rely on me. It was like this release, like I'm unreliable because uh, as long as I'm reliable, people will rely on me. My father would say, you know, you're in charge or you did, you know, whatever you're actually, you're reliable. And as long as I was doing that, you took on, you kind of went the other direction. You became more reliable. <laughs> you, be, you increased your reliability. Uh, and so tell me a little bit about that because that as things got more chaotic, your coping mechanisms. And I've always found this fascinating 
as someone who isn't a, an alcoholic or a drug addict, your coping mechanisms look very different than mine. How, how, can you tell us about that and describe that? I think, I guess going back to what you had said that you didn't parent quite as well as I did. We weren't supposed to parent, you know, that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Whenever jump forward into therapy years later, someone had told me you did what was noble, but not what you should have done. Like what you, well, your decision was noble, but it was never your place to begin with. And I was like, oh, I just did not know that was an option. But at least you place. did a decent job. <laughs> Well, I mean, I tried. Yeah. I yes. also was the oldest sibling. So I bossed my poor, so yes. my youngest sister, the the baby, uh, she and I have always been very close. I think just because it's an eight yep. and a half year age yep. gap, the middle one and I very, very close to this day. I mean, she would just take somebody out for me if she needed to. And, yep. and you know, has, she stands in between people and, and, and will never let anyone speak ill of me. She's fantastic. But I think because we were closer in age, we fought so much. And yep. so I was very hard on her because I didn't, I mean, she was my sibling, you know, like we beat the crap out of each mm-hmm. other. <laughs> oh my gosh. And my, my husband and, uh, and you, I'll be interested to what your experience is if you have another baby, but the, <laughs> my husband who sibling is 10 years older, had no idea that there was so much like physical violence. And when I would <laughs> describe to him, I was like, Oh, this is two little boys. Let me tell you what it looks like with little girls. Like we beat the living hell out of each other. It was so serious. And I was, <laughs> I was grateful you were there to like back me. I'm like, back me up, back me up. Like this is normal. <laughs> oh, it's totally normal. And I, I remember my middle sister and I, she had, so at, in our house where we lived at the time um, that, that we started fighting this much, uh, her room was the square room. So we viewed her room um, cause like mine kind of had a funky shape. My other mm-hmm. sisters had this like crescent shape almost. And then her room was square. And so we were like, Oh, it's a boxing ring. That was what we saw. And we were like, perfect. So we'll fight in your room. So we'd move things to the side. Oh my and God. You're so organized, super organized. Like it was like an organized fight and there were oh rules. And if you didn't stick to the rules, the fight was over. Oh my um, God. Oh yeah. We couldn't. And, but the thing was, we knew how to live in our environment. Cause our mom would, I mean, understandable, understandably go off on us if she found out we were fighting. So we had to fight smart. We had to be like, how can we beat the ever living hell out of each other? Right. That mom can't know. Uh. And so we thought, okay, well, she would know if it was on our face because one time one of my sisters did punch the other one and got a black eye and like they had to lie about it. It's hilarious to this day, but we thought, okay, neck down, we're good to go because we can wear sleeves and cover up and this is literally how we thought we thought right. through whole processes. Um, but we would stuff, we'd take soccer socks, the big long socks and just stuff them with hard objects, no sharp objects. Cause we didn't want to go to the hospital, but you know, bruises and whatever, that was fine. And we would just swing them and just like, just wail on each other. We both did horseback riding. I was a jumper and she was as well. Um, and so we had riding crops. We'd bring those things in just, Oh my God. Oh you, yeah. It was, it was, was pretty, it was literally fight club. Like no one talks about like fight club. Oh, it, was, it was pretty, it was pretty much fight club. And and it's funny because to this day, she and I like love kickboxing and um, just really hard sports. <laughs> you know, we were like, if there was football for girls, we would have played it. Um, but that was kind of us. And I feel like thinking back, there was a lot, it was like home was a pressure cooker and mm. there was no, um, 
self-expression necessarily. I I feel like my dad took me on a route of self-expression in regards to when he was home, he traveled a lot, but when he was home, if I was angry, he, he'd write me letters and Mm. he'd encourage me to write back. And so that Mm. was healthy. And I, I learned how to write things out, which actually dovetailed into writing music. So that, that was so helpful for me in general. I think growing up in the church culture that we did, and I'm not calling out like a specific church. It's just, I feel like the general church culture was you went to church and everything was okay. You go to church and you put on this face. How are you brother? Oh, I'm great. How are you sister? Oh, I'm just fabulous. You know, and you put on your dress and everything is wonderful and you show up as a family and then you go home and it's absolute complete hell. There's turmoil, there's fighting, there's no regulation. No one's talking about things. There's no, I'm sorry. There's no mommy and daddy. You're sorry that we're fighting. We're sorry that we were yelling. Are you scared? You're not scared. And so I had to figure out how to navigate that. And then when my sisters would come to me saying that they were scared because mommy and daddy were screaming, I had to figure out an answer for that. Mm. And it was, it was my answer as a teenager or as like a, you know, elementary schooler. And i don't even remember half the things I told them. I just remember redirecting as much as I possibly could. But then I felt like I just took everything on. And what that ended up looking like was I would just have, it would be like once or twice a year, I would just have these just explosions, these Mm. emotional explosions. And I feel like the way that I always have dealt with things is I just kind of take it on and just internalize and I'm just quiet. And I'm like, I can do this. I can work through this. It's going to be okay. Cause I would rather it be me than my sisters. And that was, mm-hmm. that summarizes my childhood. Mm-hmm. I'd rather it be coming on me than my sisters. So I'd even find myself picking fights with mm-hmm. my mom because she was very like external in her faces. And I would pick fights with her and she'd be like, Oh, you were so rebellious thinking back when we talk now. And I was like, no, I was picking a fight with you so that you wouldn't like basically yell at my sisters. Like I, I was trying to take everything on me because right. I knew I could, I knew I could walk through it. I didn't know if they could or not. And so these explosions would happen and the explosion would look like I'd be at school and, um, it actually started kind of coming out actually when I was in about first or second grade, it came out as a, an imaginary friend. Mm. And I thought that wasn't weird because I, you know, I had a huge imagination and was always making up songs or dances or something. I was just constantly creating something. Um, And I had an imaginary friend and her mom and they had names and they lived in my room and thinking back, actually, it was in the therapy session where I realized, well, that's kind of weird the friend, her name was Katie. I don't know why there was, I didn't know a Katie. Um, and Katie always did things wrong and I always did things right. And her mom was always telling me how great I was mm. and how bad Katie was. I think that was my way of working through it. Cause I yeah. didn't ever feel like I could do anything right. So I had to make up this imaginary person that was telling yeah. me I did a good job. Um, and then I think later on, are in they life, in the room with us now? <laughs> you know, kidding. they might be Katie. <laughs> Katie, I feel like in Frozen 2, have you seen that? Um, yeah. Olaf, and he goes, yeah. Samantha. <laughs> it's like this random name. It's like, Katie, <laughs> are you there? Um, and then I think later in life, like after we started moving, we moved a few times from my dad's job because he did a phenomenal job at basically taking companies from the red to the black, and then they move them and make them do the same thing. Um, and so when I started moving, I got picked on as the new kid. Mm. And so I had internalize, 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 internalize. And I wouldn't say a lot because I, I kind of naturally always have had a lot of grace for people. Like, it's fine. They'll figure it out. We'll get to know each other. It's great. 
And then it was just like, there was one time too many where it was like, you knew you're all skinny girl, your stupid dress, your stupid shoe. And it was like, it'd just be something. And it was like, I think one time it was like, look at your stupid pointy shoes. And I looked down at them and I was like, well, I'll show you what my shoes can do. And just absolutely kicked the crap out of this kid. I mean, got him on his like the boy, almost twice my size on the floor, kicking him, kicking him in the principal's office, bruises all up and down his body. And I was laughing. And <laughs> I mean, it sounds so sick, but I was just like, well, you deserved it. Like how many, how, like, how am I in trouble? But you were allowed to sit there and verbally assault me for however many months that had been. So that would happen every time I'd move. And usually it would just be the person that just said it one too many times, couldn't tell you what that time was. It started coming out in sports where one of my teachers at school called my mom and said, I think she would do very well playing a contact sport. (laughs) Um, My mom tried to put me in tennis and that pissed me off to no end because you got to keep the ball inside the court Mm. and only hit it here and only hit it there. And I just was like, ah, like it just is too many rules, too many things. It was like, no, no, I need, I need, I want the ball to fly freaking as far as possible over that. I want to watch it. So the, the relief I got from hitting the tennis ball out of the courts. I was like, Oh, thank God. Right. Can we just make a game out of this? You know, and the tennis teachers were like done with me. They're like out. (laughs) (laughs) No, you cannot make a game out of this. (laughs) Go play lacrosse or try out for the football team. So, um, kind of a long winded way of, you know, showing it, but, or telling those stories. But I, I feel like that's, that at the time was my coping uh, and how I would deal with like the immense amount of pressure that I just felt building up inside me. And, and honestly, now thinking back to, you know, I I've played the piano since I was about six or seven and always loved it. Music was soothing to my soul. And I would just go and I'd shut the door to, we always had piano rooms and I'd shut the door and just start writing whatever, you know, whether that was just instrumental music, whether that had lyrics to it. I I didn't know how to structure a song, but I I would study it and I'd look and I'd also just kind of play whatever came out of my heart was just, it was like that expression that would just kind of fly out and it would, it would take the anger and take it out of my body and, or the sadness that I would feel. Cause I'd feel intense sadness too. And it would, I felt like I'd take it out and I could take a deep breath and I could walk out and be like, all right, I can function. Let's go. It's really interesting because as some, so I went to Catholic school and, and, but not, I'm not Catholic and, and as someone who's been around kind of what you're describing in terms of the, the religious upbringing, you know, and now is in AA and 12 step and whatever. It's interesting to me because Christianity at its core, right? Like from, from the from the text, the way that it's structured is very much about forgiveness. It's very much about, you know, there's confession, there's, you know, ways to lean on each other and be a community and, and, and do these things and, and go out and talk to people and, and, you know, the imperfections, right. Jesus was a man who went and hung out with lepers and prostitutes. And he, you know, there's this very like unkempt, Mm-hmm. story within, you know, it was within what we're talking about. Right. And, yeah. and I find it, and this is just my experience having gone to sacred heart for eight years, which is we studied the Bible, right. I wasn't Catholic, but I mean, I studied the text and yeah. the stories that come out of the text are really human stories about 
how to, you know, parables about how to be in the world. And what I find interesting is that how it actually plays out with humans Mm. in terms of like Christianity and going to church every Sunday and these types of things is people want to put on how well things are and how, how, how perfectly they're following the rules and how, you know, like it is, it's, they want it to be wrapped up in a bow. And Mm. the whole idea is that you're a community that leans on each other and works through things. Like it's not about being wrapped up in a bow when you listen and, and, and really get into the depths of it but it is how people respond. And I find it interesting, you know, in, in 12 step, when we go to meetings, which are, you know, I, my, I always joke like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I going to church. Like that's my yeah. version and where we go and we listen to stories and we talk about things and we talk about morals and values and how we show up in our lives. And we, you know, do in, in the steps in, in the, the fourth step is the equivalent of confession. And the fifth step is the equivalent of going and, and, and having that, you know, writing it down and then having that confession and all these things. Right. And so there's so many similarities, which is also why people yeah. freak out about it. Um, but how, it shows up so differently for people. The actual manifestation of, you know, the 12 steps and those types of like, it's okay to be human and flawed and to show up and show your flaws and to talk about them. And then church where people don't feel that way and they don't have that release and there isn't that safety when to me from, from, it seems like that's what we're talking about. And I, I, I wonder why it is that families, that, that, that piece of it is an embrace that there's a necessity to show up to church in a perfect light and not really utilize and, and, and what you take from that as a kid who grows up in it. You know, that's a really interesting question. I think I think part of it is, you know, there, there's an aspect and in 12 step I've seen, it's, it's interesting because I've been able to see so many similarities, just like you've said. And I think the thing in, when I say the church, I mean, the church just in general, Yeah, like like non-denominational. Yeah, exactly. I think I can see it changing. I can Mm. see it shifting and getting better. We've got a ways to go, but what I feel like has been lacking for a long time is people think, you know, they find something that has saved them, right? They found Jesus. They found this thing. It did, it did something for them. It healed a piece of them, a part of them. It made them whole. And there's an aspect of, well, why? And I've asked this question myself, why would somebody want what I want if I can't show that it's changed my life? And so, you know, it's like, you want to show like, this is what it's done for me. Right. Right. But then like, you're, you're still the broken person that's still working through all these difficult things and through these traumas and these intense hurts. And it takes time to work through that. Why would someone want what you have if that change hasn't like immediately manifested in your life and and you're not showing somebody the very best of who you are. So you want to like show people and show up for people as this like new healed person. But then there's what I feel like is also missing in the church is that 
you know, there's therapy and, and we can, I know that's kind of where the conversation is going to go. So I'll maybe give the kind of the high level and we can dive into the micro too. But I believe that God can heal anybody at any time in any way. I've seen people who are emotionally instantly healed. I've watched it because they are not the same person. My personal journey has not been that it has been, I will feel relief knowing I've hit the right vein or I'm in the right place, but my journey has been to walk out things. And I feel like that's just part of my purpose too. I feel like my purpose is to show people how to walk things out by either doing it well or making mistakes and like being like, nope, I made, you know, I made this mistake in in doing it along the way. Everybody's story is different because it's going to serve a different piece of the community. And so where I feel like church has gone wrong too is by like, okay, you show up, you get this relief, you know, you're in the right place. You know that you're connected. You have God in your life. You've made Jesus your savior. Here are all the reasons why, but then it's like, yay, high five. Awesome. Okay. See you next Sunday. And we go away and there might be a Wednesday night Bible study or a Saturday fellowship or something, but other than, Hey, just get into the word of God, which is the Bible. There's not like people really. And and again, I'm saying this in general because there are churches that do this. It's called discipleship. And it's very similar to 12 step where people are literally taking your hand and walking you through wherever you're at, you know, in, in your journey and walking you through and helping you and really mentoring you and guiding you. And that was originally how Jesus had set everything up. You were, you mentioned Jesus, literally sat with like society's worst. And I think that's the God that I fell back in love with because I ran for a long time. I I was like, I don't want any part of this. This is fake. It's It doesn't feel right to me. I didn't know what the words were, but it just didn't feel okay. It wasn't doing anything for me. I didn't understand why people would want to follow God because this is fake. And I, I I'm at home, just dying inside, wanting to die, like trying to kill myself. And I don't, I don't know what to do with this because I'd kind of always felt that godly presence and always just known I had a purpose and I had somewhere to go. And I felt that there was this presence that loved me and wanted to be with me and wanted to help me make something of myself, but I didn't know what to do with it. And, and so when I realized, and and I don't remember how I might've heard a story or really started kind of digging in, but when I realized that Jesus was like, he was born in Galilee and that was like, like there, there's actually, I think there's a scripture that says what good can come of, Gal- of someone from Galilee. It was like scum of the earth was Galilee. And he was friends with, with hookers and helped lepers and didn't turn anyone away and not only didn't turn them away, but at the be- I mean, just at the absolute hate and loathe of the religious leaders of the people that were looked up to at that time, which were the, the religious leaders, he sat with people in their darkness, in their hurt, in their pain, in their loneliness, and just spoke to them. And I was like, Whoa, I, I, I wish I could remember the moment that that hit me, but that was when I realized if that's God, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And I said that. I said, God, if if that's real, if that's you, 
I'll serve you for the rest of my life and I'll tell everybody that I know about you because I can get on with that. I can, I can sit with that. I can go with that. I can't go with this fakeness. And I remember, um, sorry, it's, it's the first time I'm remembering this in a long time. Um, I remember I stopped wanting to die because I wanted to die for a long time and I tried. And whenever I would try, I tried cutting myself. I was not very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I was really bad. Um, But I was good at like drinking things and swallowing things, which was a little scary. And every time I'd go to try doing that, I'd fall asleep. It happened three different times. And uh, I think I was just supposed to be here. That's the only explanation I have for that. Um, and I started digging in and realizing that like the same, I started feeling this kind of warmth across my body and this like love, like it was intense. It felt like someone had taken me and wrapped me in a warm blanket. And it was like, I'd feel, I I don't know how to say it without sounding weird, but it was almost like I could feel like vibrations, like a really intense energy in my chest, but it was, it just felt like love. And I would feel that whenever I would like help somebody else or sit with someone else in their pain or, you know, someone that people had cast away or bullied, I'd go and talk to them or drop off meals for somebody I knew needed food or give my last, you know, it was like all those things where it was like, and I felt like God's here, God's here in this, you know, and, and I, I loved that. I can't remember the original question you'd ask me. (laughs) No, no, that's all good. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a, I think you answered it actually, which is like, why, you know, how, how did we get away from, how did we get away from what you're describing? And it's very interesting for me to hear this stuff. And I'm sure that some of our listeners will have your experience and some will have mine, um, listening to this stuff, which is, you know, it's very interesting. I have a very hard time with Jesus and God, and it's mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable for me. I used to joke with my uncle who um, is born again. I used to tell him, I said, when you talk about God and Jesus, I feel like you're describing intimate details of your sex life. I would rather... I, like, that's how, like, I, that's how I feel like you would feel. So I would rather talk about I would more comfortably talk about intimate details of my sex life than the convert, than the, the conversation about Jesus we're having. Like, that is how uncomfortable <laughs> that topic has always made me. And, and really what, um, what's, and it's been a barrier to getting sober. It's been a barrier, you know, it's been just a constant barrier for me in my life And I always thought, I always looked at people who like felt what you're describing and thought how much like shit, man. Like, I wish I felt like that. I wish that like, that sounds great. That sounds, that sounds great that to feel and believe and, and feel that strongly that way. And like that connection and, and to not even have to like work on it or work for it. Like, how cool would that be? And it's just not some, it's not like, kind of like you said, like the people who are healed, it's, you know, it's just not my journey. That's just not Mm -hmm. my, but what I do relate to, which is very, very similar is, um, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of painting this picture for people who may feel 
the way that I have felt, you know, when I listen to, to the same thing and, and in terms of relatability, which is, you know, when I do, when I am in alignment with my values of what, who, and what I want to be on the planet. And I share that with others, like doing the same thing, sitting with people who are hurting or, or, you know, helping people who need help or insert whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I get that, that warmth and that, that comfort and that feeling of purpose. And for a long time, you know, I would just shut down when I heard anything about religion or or, or spirituality or you know, anything in between. And what I've found to be super helpful is to look for the similarities and not the differences. And Mm -hmm. that's also what you have done coming into, you know, we were talking about this in terms of themes of of your story, which is um, how coming and working with, working with and in the recovery field changed you because you realized you had your own recovery story. You had no idea. You realized how much you related to these people who acted in ways you'd never even considered or understood and how we can relate to people and, and listen to them describe, you know, there's relating and then there's listening to them describe. I can, I can listen to you and hear you describe feeling saved by Jesus and Mm -hmm. I can translate that because I've been willing to spend time looking for the similarities. I can translate that into what my version of that is. And my version of that is, is this deep knowing of who I want to be and how I show up in the world and my connection to the planet, to nature, to what nature and, 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 you know, my family and all these things want me to be, and it feels the similarities are, it feels the same way. And it, and it feels like purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, starting with Lion Rock, I, I, I had no clue that I was in for, and I mean that in such an amazing way. Cause I, you know, I started and you took me by the hand and started teaching me this is what it means. This is recovery. And you brought me into open AA meetings and um, you just sent me and inundated me with all this information <laughs> that I got to really marinate in for months. And I got to sit and listen. And even, you know, I started as a social media manager. And so I spent an mm-hmm. insane amount of t- time on Instagram looking at recovery influencers and li- like just I would watch and see and digest the language that they were using what were they posting what was funny to them what was not funny to them what was what were the messages people were responding to what meant something to other people what meant something to me and in finding and putting all those pieces together as I sat and watched and learned and 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 sat in you know groups and more meetings mm-hmm. and I, I started hearing the similarities, not the differences. And, you know, you had asked me, we did an episode in season one and we were talking about, you know, you, I mean, we did so many of them, but there was one specifically where it was an after the episode and you had asked, well, what did you think addiction was mm-hmm. or what did you think recovery was before? And, you know, I do feel like there was a, a part of me that was frustrated with addiction at one point, probably like, oh, I'm frustrated college. with addiction. <laughs> Well, now I'm frustrated in a different yeah, way, yeah, for yeah. sure. But, but oh God, I can't even imagine. Um, but 
I feel like I was like, well, why can't people put something down? But knowing that the complexities of my childhood and the complexities of, well, why don't you just do this? Or why didn't you just do this? Knowing when people would ask that question, I'd be like, if you only knew, like there's right to you as, as it relates to your childhood. Right. And I'd be like, God, like there's just years behind that answer that it it can't be summed up and it's not black and white. And Mm. so I, I remember there was a shift in me. I think it probably came into my twenties because that's whenever I started really working through my own mental health and started, you know, panic attacks started happening and I didn't know what these things were or why they were coming out. I thought I was doing really well, you know, and, and you think um, you're having a heart attack like your, with your panic attacks or did you know what they were? I actually didn't. I knew I wasn't having a heart attack. I think being a dancer, you can just focus on, we know so many parts of our body and how it all fits together. And I could feel it would start in my chest, but it was my breathing Mm. and it was, you know, it didn't originate from my heart, but I just didn't know why I thought I was weak is what I thought. You're Mm. just really emotionally weak. I'd been told that by a lot of people. You're too sensitive. You don't take a lot of things very well. You know, you're, you just, you take things too personally. Um, emotions equal weak, mm-hmm. emotions equal weak. And I'd always had to, you know, growing up, I'd always have to stuff it. And like, you just act like you're just, you've got it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think recovery or addiction, as I had known it, you know, was my, my thought was it's something really difficult to deal with almost like a marathon or like an ultra marathon. Hey, this is hard work. This is something you're going to have to work really hard, really long train, super hard for, but there's a goal. And like, once you cross the line, like, congratulations, <laughs> you're sober. That's Woo-hoo! what I thought. Yeah. No. Please direct me love to that? said line. <laughs> Wouldn't you love that? Right. Um, so I, I think I always thought that and, and to whatever varying degree, you know, but, but um, starting at Lion Rock, you know, I thought I'm going to have to really shut up and listen what to, this is a new industry for me. I am coming in with zero knowledge. The only knowledge that I thought I had was in first grade. Um, (laughs) one of my dad's friends was, I don't know what he was on. You can maybe tell me, but, uh, he, he would call our house at the time home phones with answering machines, you know, that played out loud and, um, would leave messages about like all the intricate ways he was going to murder my, me and my sisters and, rape my mother and, um, you know, how he'd come in the night and, oh, it was bad. And I just remember during that time, like police escorts, like people having to like stay and like, they'd have cops park outside of our house. And, um, he actually has since been clean and sober. I don't know how long it took him, but, but he, he did find sobriety and has been doing well. So I'm really happy to hear that, but it was scary. And I remember, but in the meantime, he traumatized your whole family. And that was a little scary. I think my parents did their best to like kind of keep us sheltered from it, but I was hearing all the messages and my dad sat us down and was like, this is happening. This is Mr. You know, I'm not going to say his name, but Mr. You know, whoever. And, um, you know, he's just very sick is what he'd tell us. He's very, very sick. And he doesn't know what he's saying. And I remember thinking like, how does he not know what he's saying? (laughs) I know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're I mean, not that's totally to be fair. It's so, <laughs> right? and, until you've experienced not knowing what you're saying, you're like, that makes zero sense. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so in in learning all these things from Lionock and seeing, 
I mean, really, honestly, what did it was sitting in the groups, sitting yeah. in the AA meetings, in the, I, in the intensive outpatient groups, intensive yep. outpatient groups. And I remember I'd sit there and I, I would tell everybody in the group, like, Hey, I'm taking notes, but it's not like psychoanalysis. You know, this yeah, is yeah, I'm yeah. taking notes because I'm hearing what you're saying. And I want to remember it because it's important for me to remember. It. And they were all so sweet and like, yes, thank you. And, and, you know, thanks for caring and listening. And it was neat to see how they brought me into the group. No judgment, even though knowing I was a new employee, I was trying to learn. And I, and I even told them, I'm like, hey, I'm doing social media. Like, if you say a really good quote, I might use it. And they'd be like, OK. And, you know, it was neat because I got to hear their stories and the depths of where they came from. And I were remember you surprised it, at like who they were, like successful or or or, yeah. or not or whatever, like who, who was yes. in there. Oh, I was so surprised. I remember just seeing people from all walks of life. Um, the amount of business people that traveled and were doing yes. groups from their hotel room blew my mind. And just hearing how they had their life so together in so many other aspects, mm -hmm. but this area was something that they just could not get a grasp and a handle on. And, you know, whatever um, you know, thing had happened that had finally gotten them to say, I got to be in group, whether it was their family had walked away or, you know, they just, the amount that they were using or drinking was just like, it was even scaring them. Um, you know, that was, that was very eye opening for me where I thought this, like my bias towards this was wrong. And I need to really just shut up and realize that like, these are people who are trying their best and who are broken and vulnerable and in these groups, just so vulnerable and just fighting for their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think the brevity of that made me almost want to leave <laughs> the first month because I just was like, it was so much to process. Yeah, and yeah. I think the gravity of knowing what they were dealing with, I was like, well, you're an always empath. Been, I'm an empath. And there was something like in me, you know, like you're like, one day I could do that, you know, and if you're like thinking of things that you want to do as you're growing older. And I'd always thought people had always said, you would be a great counselor. And um, <laughs> I know that I know that's why you're laughing. That is not in any way, shape or form uh. something that is like supposed to be me. Um, it's too much. So <laughs> sitting in those groups, I was like, oh, dude, it's too much it. for me. It's too much for me. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's how like can it not be. I mean, some, How some people are, are, are able to, to me, it's, you know, there's, there's, you have to, you have to, when you absorb, you have to, um, release and, yeah. and that if you are a person who absorbs and struggles to release, you're not really good at that, you know, that getting out the toxins piece, right. That detox yes. piece, um, it, it, you, 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 you know, if you, absorb toxicity, pain all day long, and you can't get rid of it, you become riddled with it. So it's really, it's a really important thing that they teach counselors and, and, you know, um, yeah, it's, it, they, they are a, a special group of people. They really are. Um, and so I, I learned from that. And then after, you know, I started April, 2018 and then podcasts, <laughs> the planning started in December uh, of 2018, but then we launched. It was the last week of February. It was February, I think, 27th or 28th. Was it a leap year? I can't remember. It was one of those days. It was like I don't the know last what day, it day is of today. February. 
I think today is Wednesday that mm. we're recording. I don't Perfect. know if this is not going to come out Wednesday, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that's whenever I, the podcast really helped because it was like this, it was almost like a brand new crash course into everybody's story and realizing and hearing everybody's recovery stories and then finding those similarities. While I couldn't relate, I had never reached for a substance to make me feel better growing up, right? To deal with the trauma that had happened in my childhood. Um, the desire just wasn't there. I, I mean, it just, I know and that blows your mind. I <laughs> did not look at it as an option at all. And, and you had healthy coping. I mean, what was, what's wild to me, we've talked about this. Like you had, you know, your parents ended up getting divorced. It was very painful. You moved around a lot. You ended up, um, living in Atlanta and going to school there, which I can't picture. Um, and, <laughs> and then, and living in a Chicago and then coming back and you ended up living with, a, you know, this other family. Like there were so many times where, I was like, yeah, that could have been a good time to start using. That could have been a good time to start. Yeah, that was definitely optimal time to start using. Like you were like, I was a dancer. I did these poetry things. Like you were, I was thinking like, dear God, I hope I have a child who has the innate <laughs> sense of positive coping skills that you have, because I found 300,000 moments in your life when it would be appropriate to start drinking. I was like, no, no, you Yep. Permission granted. Okay. You did not do that. No. Okay. Moving on. And, and you just, that's incredible. It really is. It and, and you, you hung out with, um, I remember you were telling me like you went and hung out with the quote unquote druggies. I always picture, um, clueless when you tell that story, I always picture clueless, the, the, the stoners on the, on the, uh, on the little field. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar, but they were the kindest people because it was my, it was my first year of high school and I just moved to Atlanta like the year before. So I was still a new girl, you know, high school then is brand new and all these kids were older and getting drugs from, I couldn't tell you where I, cause I didn't know where to, and I just remember one of them said, Hey, you want to come sit with us? Cause I'm like, you know, you walk out in the lunchroom with your tray and you just feel like I just (laughs) want to drop through a sinkhole right Uh now, just uh open a sinkhole. And I just, and no one's going to stare at me. And I, one of them was like, you want to come sit with us? And I was like, oh, thank God. Yes. And someone else had told me like, don't sit with them. They're the druggies. And I was like, well, but they asked me if I wanted to sit with them and I would like to sit somewhere and they were so kind and they would offer me drugs. I don't know what they were offering me. Full disclosure. I have no clue. I know they were smoking. I don't think I ever watched somebody shoot something up because I was like deathly afraid of needles at the time. So I would have said something and been like, oh, that's bad, you know? But I think it was. I don't know. I'm not even going to say what I think it was, but it was for sure drugs because they'd go, do you want some? And they did it out of the kindness of their heart. You know? For and sure. Oh, for definitely. If they're offering you free drugs, hundred percent kindness of their heart. <laughs> See you now do. knowing that I'm like, oh, oh my 100%. gosh, that was so nice. No, legitimately they liked you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I remember just being like, you know what? No, that's just not for me. Yeah. You know, I, but thank you. And they'd always go, girl, you're amazing. Mm-hmm. You're such a good influence on us. And I'd be like, oh, I said, you know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just didn't like, have no, a problem, a deal. but they didn't have a problem with me and I didn't have a problem with them. I just thought I'm not going to stop somebody from doing whatever they're going to do. But all I know is that they showed me a lot of kindness and I needed it at that time. I needed people who were looking out for me and I, I felt less alone and I felt like, you know, I, I always looked out for other people and couldn't figure out why I would get stomped on so many times. And, yeah. and so having somebody look out for me was just so nice. And I don't know, it, it was, they, they were amazing people and I hope all of them 
made it out okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of drugs that we're using. I mean, it's, it is, it is incredible. I mean, it really is incredible that you were able to do that, but I mean, it goes back to your, when you and I started interacting and you came onto Lion Rock and you're sitting through these things and you're, you're, you know, and, and coming to the podcast and you, and, and with the podcast, you're starting to listen to all sorts of wild stories. I mean, shit, they're wild. Some of these stories are wild to me and I've, I've heard them all. And, um, and, and I remember, you know, thinking like, oh shit, she may really need, we may, we need. <laughs> like a couple of times with the sex trafficking ones, I was like, oh God, I, like, I need to, I need to help. I need to help her. Like, this is so gnarly. <laughs> um, she's not this poor girl. Um, and, and, but it, you, it was interesting to me to watch. And I mean, it's been amazing to watch the shift, right. And, and mm-hmm. in, what you can't explain to people, it has, it's experiential for them coming into the recovery world. It's experiential in terms of if you've never, you know, had this kind of exposure about you met all these people. And what's cool is you met them in recovery. So you met all these people who had the most, you know, insane stories and you met them when they were, you know, like me, just, you know, normal suburban mom or whatever. Like you, you, yep. you met them in a stage that looked nothing like what they were describing. And I saw the shift in thinking, and I saw the shift in understanding how our brains are processing things differently. I think a big turning point, and I'm going to let you describe you know, what it is, but one that I saw was you once told me, you said, Every time, you know, these people, and it were, it was people typically with substance use, cause we interviewed a lot of different people, but you would say every time, you know, the thing I keep hearing is that the addiction gets louder and louder and louder. So they can't hear anything else. And that recovery is what turns it down. And you were like, I just keep hearing that. And, you know, to me, I'm like, yeah, oh yeah. But for you, there were certain things you were like, you were that pattern recognition. When I think that I'm so glad you brought that up because I forgot that I had said that to you. And that was probably after the podcast, right? Because we were hearing all these stories in such a like a finite amount of time. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing that. And even though, you know, I, I couldn't even pretend to walk through or know what it's like to have substance use disorder and and the pain that comes with that. You, what I could empathize with was I'm hearing that you're tormented. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing torment and you want out and you cannot figure out how to get out. And this thing, recovery, whatever this means, whatever your journey has been, what you found helps get your relief, helps you live the life you want, help, you know, and helps you take the steps that you need to take in order to get that. And I understood that because I could, I could think back to all the times that I started having even the panic attacks Mm -hmm. or felt so trapped in just my own mental prison and feeling like I, those times where I was going to explode. And like, if this doesn't get better, I don't, I don't know. I don't even want to think about what next steps would be. And I heard that in like my heart shattered into a million pieces hearing each of these stories. And the fact that this, they, these, these people write quotes went from, oh, you were just a druggie you couldn't put it down mm-hmm. to your heart is 
in so much pain. You are in so much torment. You are, you just need some relief. And I was like, I understand that. And, you know, my love for this community and my love for seeing how people walk things out and the braveness that it takes to walk this out on a daily basis and how, you know, I think of now I have a daughter and I think of you and Ben and my sweet, beautiful friends that have shared all their stories on this podcast. And it's like, and Ashley Joe, and it's like, wow, like the brevity, I got you, you feel so much brevity as a parent. You feel just this like weight on you of responsibility. And I feel like what, what, what it feels like to me is that there's an extra weight as well. And it's the weight of if I misstep or pick this back up or, you know, drop my recovery in this way, it impacts so much more than if, if I were to go and open the fridge and be like, you know what? It was just a hard day. I'm going to have a glass of wine. It's totally different. It's the, 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 the need for relief and the way to walk it out is completely different. And, and just, again, the gravity and the, just the heaviness that comes with that and just the knowledge. And, and I think that almost circling this back all the way, that's what the church has been missing. It's, it's the, the know-how, the steps, the community, the digging in, the realizing you cannot live this way anymore. And I think that there's so many people with the option to live however they want to live still. And they can kind of ping pong back and forth within their trauma or their brokenness and, and get away with not dealing with it. But whenever you are in recovery for a substance use disorder, you simply cannot. And I feel like that's the bravery is that you are in the face of this thing, this just complete like presence or, you know, whatever all the time you have, you have to be facing it. You have to be looking it straight in the face and dealing with it head on all the time. And it is difficult and tiring, but also the community knows how to rally around each other and do it the right way. And that has been the most inspiring thing I have said to my husband so many times. I'm like, if the church could just get this, I feel like there'd be so many less broken people in the world because we'd be supporting people right where they're at and telling them and helping them know there's not, Hey, there's not another option anymore. You've got to do this. You've got to deal with it head on and like do the heart work and do the soul work. And that, I mean, I think that has been the biggest, well, I I can't say the biggest, but one of the biggest pieces that I've taken away from just seeing all my friends who are in recovery and how much I look up to them and how much I look up to you. It's not because I think you guys are perfect and have it all together because everyone is dealing with something, but it's just that bravery to keep going and to like keep facing it down no matter what. This is my only option and knowing it's bigger than you. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I think in some ways, you know, and again, this isn't, I swear this isn't a, um, a, uh, compliment competition, but, um, (laughs) but in some ways, you know, I was very much the consequences for me, not doing, not being in recovery are (laughs) real bad, like real, real, real bad and serious and affect everyone. And they were, 
a diff, they were really bad before. And they're frankly, even worse now because of all these things that I have to lose that I didn't have when I got sober. What's interesting to me is you came in and, and one thing you said, what that is, it is an interesting thing in the way I see it is, you know, when, if you, if, if you go to have a drink and I go to have a drink, right. The consequences are different and living, living with untreated trauma, uh, for you and for me is different. Yes. And one of the things that's, that's beautiful about, about being willing to do quote unquote, what we call the work in whatever way is necessary for your own story, whether you're a parent of someone who's in recovery, you know, you heard my mom, I mean, my mom's recovery story is real. She was traumatized and a lot of shit went down and, you know, it looks different for her, but it's still, it's, we're talking about ultimately this, this thing called trauma and Mm -hmm. you, what I found interesting through this process, you did not have jails breathing down your neck. You didn't have, you know, you didn't, you didn't have the things breathing down your neck that many of us who are in substance use disorder recovery have. And let me tell you, those things are motivating, right? I mean, they, they're not, they're not the, it doesn't stop us per se, but it's, it's definitely like, you know, it's definitely different, but what I find interesting is, and a perfect example is when you started working with us, you had been married for, I think, 10 years and, um, you know, happy, happy marriage. And, um, you know, you love kids and you, you worked with kids as a dance instructor and, you know, there was, you're very maternal and all these things. Right. But you were not sure you have one parent that, um, is a narcissist and you were not sure or has narcissistic traits, we could say, and you weren't sure whether or not that would come for you. You, you, you know, if you, if those would show up, you, you were like, I don't know, is it going to show up when I have a kid or, you know, and you were, you were really afraid of what would happen if you would do the same thing, or if not even you do the same thing, but if the same things would happen, if you brought another life into the world, that was your trauma changing the direction of your life and the purpose of your life. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. Um, and, uh, I, I always joked, I was like, I don't know how anybody works in an office with other people and gets things done. Cause like I, we, I, we just therapy it up. And, um, and so, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about that, about how like, Hey, that's trauma. That's, you know, that voice, that torment, that's the torment. Like you're having it. It just doesn't look the same as my torment. It's just different. It's not. And yet it truly does. And I think this is what people, you know, I really want to highlight and then I'll shut up and let you talk about this is that it, your trauma absolutely affects every day, every part of your life. It may not affect it the way that someone shooting heroin does. It probably won't. You know, it's, it's, that is a, it is the fast track, right? You do the fast pass straight to hell and you, you, but there are, there are, you know, avenues that are much slower, but they're still equally as corrosive and the trauma is corrosive when left when, when it's not dealt with and it will change the course of your life and the life of your, your, your families and generations, the same way your parents who had a really rough upbringing, both of them, it changed the course of their life. Who knows what that looks like. 
And you became willing to look at the trauma that you had from your childhood and your, you know, early adulthood, whatever those things and the beliefs that that trauma caused, you know, it's, there's the trauma and then there's all the beliefs that you keep with it, right? The trauma doesn't keep happening, but the belief system it, it creates does it, that's the, that perpetuates. You became willing to look at that and your life changed as a result of that. I got, I had the privilege of watching that. I've had the privilege of watching that. And I think that's really important to talk about because maybe when you showed up, you probably, and I'm, again, I'm putting words in your mouth so you can correct them, but probably didn't know you had a, a ton of work to do. I didn't. I, I think I thought, yeah, there were some tough things that happened, but I thought, you know, oh my gosh, nothing like what our clients are going through and, you know, nothing like, right. you know, like that, like it wasn't that big. That's kind of always been how I look back at things. Eh, it's hard. It's painful. It's not that bad. It's fine. You know, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And, and what I realized through, you know, hearing all these stories and taking a look within myself is that time doesn't heal things by itself, right? It's if you're doing the work over time, things like the grief and the trauma and stuff will start eventually dissipating and, and going into the right pieces. But um, I, I mean, yeah, God, I can't believe I started whenever I was 10 years married. Yeah, I didn't want to. I, I had I gotten 10. into the. You got married in 09, like, right? It was 07. 07. More than so 10. 2018. 11. <laughs> we're good at math. Just you didn't case. hire me for my math skills. Yep, we're good at math. There we go. 11. <laughs> I can, as a dancer, I can count up to five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. <laughs> then oh, we start good. over. That's so one. good. Yeah. So you know anything over. Okay. Right? That's good. Well, then you're clear. You're free and clear. That's I'm a, good. As great an excuse as any. <laughs> um. So I think that you know when when Roger and I first got married, we had talked. You know, you have all the talks. This is what I want. I want. You know, and we had said we want a house and then a dog and then kids, and we we're like, perfect. It'll happen that way. <laughs> That's funny. You know. It, that just <laughs> didn't happen that way. Still waiting for a house. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, we we live in a house, but it's yeah. you know we're we're renting it. Which let me say this: very thankful for that actually at, at this moment in time. <laughs> but um, you know, I changed my mind halfway through. I all of a sudden something flipped, and it was whenever we were starting to have the conversation: Do you want to try for kids? And I'd push it off by a year. No, ask me next year. Ask me. Ask me next year. Nope. Next year. Next year. And it just, I had this fear. And didn't want to face it. And, and it was a lot about dance. It, it, it manifested as being related to dance for you. Mm-hmm. Remember so you, started, you were, you were, yep. you tried to convince me this had to do with dance. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I did. You did. Oh my and God. I, I did. did. I was did. like, that's just because I want my career to continue. And it's like, I started later in life and yeah, yeah. which is you, true. Like, oh, yeah. And I was like, uh-huh. I started getting picked up and, you know, I didn't. <laughs> Yeah, I know. She didn't believe me at all. So I was like, yeah, that's why. That's why. It's because, you know, you can't dance after you have a baby, which is so not true because my mentor did and still does. And she's had three. So she's amazing. Um, but your legs don't work. You're stiff. You feel yeah, like yeah, your grandma, but you can work. still pull your leg up to your head. It's yeah. fine. But, you know, afterwards, you just feel like you're going to die. But it's it's fine. It's fine. It's also all fine. Uh, <laughs> so I roll out of bed and I'm like, <laughs> like, why don't my joints crack? Oh, because a child came out of my body recently, but I, I did, I did try and convince you and Roger, oh, let me, I just want to see my dance career through. I want to finish it. I don't want it to interrupt it. I'm having such a good time. I don't want to have to be pregnant and then recover. And 
But then it really, I think Roger started digging in more because he, I mean, understandably wanted to know why. And I remember getting very angry at him and pushing back and pushing back and being like, turning into the like hands off my body. Don't push me. And it's my choice. And I'm the one who has to carry the child and you don't, all you need to do is input the sperm. And you know, it's like, you don't have a say it's me. It's not you. And like, I guess when I started noticing like, Hey, this is a big thing. It's, I would look at, not that my sister-in-law's pregnancies and having a child is easy, but the ease of the choice for them. Yes. That that's what I would see. And it was just like, and I asked both of them too. And I would ask you, and I asked a couple of my other friends who are moms and it was a no brainer for them. And I was like, why is never even considered not right. And, and I, here I am overthinking. And I remember talking to my dad about it, getting his perspective as he and I externally processed together a lot. And, and, um, you know, I, I gave him my list. Well, dad, here's the list of why it's not, you know, it's not a good thing for me to have a kid. And, 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 you know, these are all the things that are stopping me. And my dad said to me, you know, Hey, Christiana, I, I think I'm hearing your list and I'm hearing your, your spreadsheet. so to speak, you know, he goes, I can hear a spreadsheet in your brain. And he goes, the only thing you haven't considered is he's like, there's a heart part that you can't spreadsheet and it's what these, what a kid will do to your heart and add to your life. And it's something you cannot write down, put into words, spreadsheet chart. And he said it overtakes everything else and makes it completely obsolete. And I know you said something very similar to me. Well, what we did, I'm laughing because here's what we did. You were telling me your spreadsheet yes, and I said, okay, we're going to spreadsheet and you are. So part of what's been, you know, people who don't know you as well as I do, part of what was so ridiculous about the whole thing is that you are the most maternal, sweet, loving, wanting to be mother person I've ever met. Your dog living life (laughs) as your dogs is is akin to the best childhood anyone is ever going to have. You love ch- like it was like it. You know, there's some people I meet and they're like, I don't want kids. I'm like, yeah, that checks out. You know, and, and for you, it was like, yeah, no. And and so we did this. You were giving me your spreadsheet, and I was like, okay, so let's spreadsheet um, all the logical reasons to have a dog. Yes, and to not have nice. a dog. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, so so it loves you. It greets you when you come home and I was, you know, and I, cause I did this with my husband too. So I was mm-hmm. laughing. I was like, mm-hmm. and uh, okay. So here are the reasons not to do it. They're expensive. They're da, 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 da. And I said, okay, so if we looked at this spreadsheet of reasons to have a dog on this spreadsheet, terrible decision, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. You're right? yes. we like, yeah, that does not look good. Like, picks up shit. The dog barfs, you know, whatever, like all these things and your reasons for having it loves you unconditionally, you know, excited when you come home, you get a few licks. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to cuddle. So cute. You know? And it was like, I was like, look, it doesn't make any sense. Like we wouldn't. And yet if I tried to convince you not to have a dog, you would never speak to me again. You know, it was like, it it was like absurd. And, and, and that was, I just remember laughing about that spread your particular spreadsheet. Yes. It was my spreadsheet. I I'm so glad that you reminded me of that because that was a good day. And I remember connecting with that. And I feel like that was another stepping stone on the way to having kids. Um, 
you know, and, and I, I thought through it a lot and was very scared. I didn't want to come out. You know, my parents had both been through very traumatic childhoods and made something great of themselves. Um, but there were a lot of things left that the way our family grew up, the way I was treated by certain family members, I didn't want any piece of that. And yeah. I always said, if there's any inkling of that in me, yeah. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I did that to my child. So therefore, I would rather right. not have them and completely take that out of the equation rather than worry about that and worry about that. And I think that didn't just go away, you know, either. I think that it was, I had started, ended up starting therapy by realizing all the ways that it helped people that I'd been hearing their podcast stories. And, and I thought, well, you know, I'm really, I'd started having panic attacks again. It was like, they'd kind of come in waves. They'd come for a period of a year or whatever, and then come back and well, something very related to your childhood started to, to happen. Yes. Yes. And I, I remember that was the same year that the podcast had, had launched and I was, I'm, I'm not going into detail because I'm protecting certain parties. Yeah. I'm not saying a lot, but basically it was a situation where I was so controlled and, and just, it, it was overwhelming. And I think as you grow up and you start seeing the way that things are supposed to be from an adult standpoint and how you were taken advantage of either as a broken person or as a child, it's alarming and devastating, especially when it's people that you love or loved and thought that had your best interest at heart. And, and whether they meant to or not, it was beyond devastating. I mean, beyond devastating. So I remember there was a point where I was at Lion Rock and I was doing my work, but that was kind of all I could do. I couldn't even like talk. Yeah. You know, I couldn't I remember. Yeah. You texted me and you were just like, Hey, I, I was like, I don't know. know what's up with you, but you okay? <laughs> yeah. You were like, I just want you to know, I know you're going through a hard time and it's going to be okay. And I think I just texted back. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't talk, which was not like me. So I started therapy and what therapy did for me was take all my thoughts, my biases, the things that I thought had happened. And, and it really helped to categorize them correctly where, okay, I'd describe this trauma or describe this situation or describe this person. And the, my therapist would just put the correct perspective into it. But, but it's therapy is so fantastic because you're being led in the right way, but you're coming to those conclusions by yourself, which is the healing part because it's part of taking your power back. And I remember that year I started, I feel like for the first time, I always thought I knew who I was. Like I, I was very bold as a kid, very confident as a kid. And then I completely lost it through, you know, this period of time. And I feel like I got it back after therapy because I remember coming to you and, and saying after I'd started therapy and working through a lot of stuff, one of the things that helped me the most, and this was so weird because it said, and I even told you this, I said, this sounds so superficial, but me identifying my clothing style. So meaning like what I like to wear, I like wearing jeans with holes in them, a band t-shirt. And I have worn band t-shirts since before they were cool. I'm just saying that right now for all you <laughs> kids out there wearing rock and roll t-shirts of bands that you don't even know. Um, sorry, that was a ding. Um, <laughs> but I, I remember I liked that. And then I liked like kind of like a chunky sweater or a sweatshirt and like, 
just knowing that and identifying that was so, it was so freeing and just being like, oh no, that's what I like. I'm not being told what I like or told what to wear. And it was like, there's little bits that felt superficial to me, but I remember you were like, no, that's part of the process. You are literally putting back together all the pieces of your life. And, and that includes that, that part of your identity, because that's important. If it's what you like, then it matters and it's important. And so all those pieces started coming together and I did, I went to, um, I was like invited at the last minute in, in the beginning of 2020 to a vision board. Mm-hmm. It was like new year's vision board, you know, party basically. And it was really cool. I loved it. It was done by someone that I had taken dance class from who is huge in LA and she's amazing. Um, and she walked us through vision boarding and, you know, just, what do you want for the year and and how to kind of like walk through that and how like she she showed me her vision board from the year before and how certain things turned out or didn't turn out but it was kind of the way it was supposed to be and here's why and just a really neat experience where you just started becoming mindful of what you wanted and what your goals and what your dreams are and how to visualize them and put them into place and um so I created my whole vision board and all of a sudden I started realizing through this whole process it was like 4 hours that I was there I'm gluing families onto my vision board. I'm gluing a mom and dad and a little girl and a dog, a mom, a dad, a little girl and a dog, a mom, a dad, a little girl and a dog in like three different places and did not even realize we just had to basically start flipping through magazines and cut out things that spoke to our heart. And that year we got pregnant, but it was that kind of vision board that I looked and I realized I've been so held back by fear my whole life, by the fear of, but what if I turn out this way? But what if I turn out this way? But what if this happens? But what if I can't control this? But what if I can't stop this from happening? Or, or, And when all I needed to actually do is just surrender to whatever God's plan was for my life and know that if it's the plan, then it's going to be okay. And that's what I couldn't trust because I felt like Growing up, I had to control things and keep and make sure everything was okay. And that's what I conditioned myself to do for so long. And I came home and told Roger, I was like, I'm so sorry that I've held us back. You know, I'm sorry that, you know, I fought with you so hard on this. I'm going to just let's, I don't want to plan anything. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to track my ovulation. That's stressful to me. Let's just surrender. And we got pregnant in August. And I have a little girl now and it's, she's so amazing. And I think when she was born, I heard a lot of people that either say they instantly felt bonded with their baby or they were alarmed that they didn't feel instantly bonded with their baby. People's experiences have been across the board that I've heard. And I think my experience was I had her and she was mine. And I, I'm like, you're mine. And because you're mine, I love you. But now I get to embark on a journey of getting to know who you are and we get to build a relationship together. And so I brought her home just with the knowledge that I am now discovering who you are and we get to bond together. And it has been phenomenal. And I feel like as I've been bonding with her and as she's been growing, I've been getting to learn how to correctly have a relationship, Hmm. you know, where both people are free in it and 
you know, like I'm her parent, so I'm her authority, but I'm not her controller. Just and <laughs> I know, I know I'm saying all this and like interview me. When no, she's I love two. it. I love it. I know. But I think like the mindset and the mindset almost reminded me of whenever, so whenever I did teach dance, um, I taught this team and they were amazing. They were, um, a lyrical team and they were a team of seven to, they were seven to nine year olds. And now they're like 13. It's crazy. I'm seeing all these pictures of them now. And I remember one of the little girls came up to me. Like I had shifted there. We, we were, we had them in competition and I had shifted them into a different category. And she was very mad at me that I'd shifted <laughs> them into a different category. This is not the right category. We should be competing in a higher category. She's like eight at the time, nine. And she was angry. And she told me she got in my face and she goes, I am so mad at you. I'm so mad at you. And I remember in that moment, I could have shut her down and been like, don't be rude to your teacher. And I remember in that moment, I was like, okay, she feels She's feeling some sort of way for a reason. So I need to let her know I hear her and I'm going to tell her like, hey, I'm not going to always ask you to do this, but you just need to trust me here and, and I'll, I'll show you why. Just trust where I'm taking you. And she was still mad. And then we ended up winning the competition <laughs> because I shifted them. And it was it was kind of weird the way the categories were. It was the right decision. And it ended up showing because we took the whole competition. So this girl's come home with jackets and a flag and all that, you know, all this fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And she comes and she hugs me and she says, thank you. I do trust you. And that I'll always carry that moment with Mm. me because that showed me, you know, for me, if I was to ever like express that way as a kid, it would have been like squashed, you know, it's like, no, don't, you are not allowed to be angry. And she, I I think I kind of gave her the space to be angry, but also showed her like, Hey, but you don't need to call me names because that's rude. So let's not do that but you can be angry. That's Mm -hmm. okay. I'm okay with you being angry at me, but let's not call names. That's where that gets rude and just hang on, you know, and and she got to work through it. We got to work through it together. And I feel like that honestly was one of those, that's one of those examples that I sat and has been put in my brain of like motherhood and how to not be afraid when going through it. It's like, you're going to go through the gamut. I'm going to make mistakes. Hopefully not awful ones, but you know, I'm not going to be perfect the whole time, which is hard to admit, you know, as long as I'm just in relationship with her and I just take her, I'm willing to take her hand and talk with her and be there with her. It's like the fear goes away. And I don't know. It was like, once I had her too, all of a sudden, all the things I was worried, can I do this? Or would I do this? Or would I pick this up? All of a sudden I just realized, no, I I can be whatever I need to be for her. And that Mm -hmm. can shift and change as she grows. And it will shift and change as she grows because I will do the work. I'll do whatever it takes to be whatever I need to be for her at that moment. And I'm doing that to this day. He called my therapist, got made another appointment because I'm like, oh, nope, I'm going to have to teach her an example of how to work through this one day. So I got to fix it in me now so that she has an example of what to do. Not just me sitting there praying, God, you know, Help, help make her not anxious. Well, I, I mean, not that I'm going to do it right all the time, but if I can't show her how to work through anxious, what, what's me praying for it going to do? I mean, and I, and that's, that might be controversial because with, you know, I, I do believe in the power of prayer. I do believe that God answers prayers. I, I, I wholeheartedly, I've gone on my journey away from it and come completely back because it's like, God showed me every time that he's there and he's going to walk me through something, whether I'm weak, whether I'm strong, whether I'm, you know, whatever. But I also know that there's an aspect of like, you got to pick things up. Man. Work. You, 
oh, you got to do your footwork. It's not just sitting there powerless. Well, God, okay, you need to, you, okay, you do this now, God. He's the whole point is for us to be able to continue growing so that we can be an example. And the reliance on God and the surrender on God or to God is because we are human, because we are going to make mistakes, because we are going to need to be redirected. And because he does have a great plan for our lives and loves every single person. But, you know, I can't rely completely on myself to make all the right decisions and nor do I want to, because I've super screwed it up. But I think that's, that's again, where if we could take the whole conversation and circle it back, it's, it's, that's where I think that the church can get more empowered with their people too. It's yes, completely surrender, completely relying on God. But what that doesn't mean is that you usurp all responsibility and you get to just sit there and coast and go, well, God's just going to make it better because that's just not how we were designed. We were designed to dig in, to do hard things, to face ourselves and to look at that even the things that happened to us, we're still responsible for healing from them. So we don't pass them down to the next generation. And that has been such an empowering aspect because that's kind of not how I was like shown the way, you know, in, in my Christian life. Um, that's something that I am seeing the trend go towards now. There's a lot more people coming in, understanding psychology, understanding therapy and, and knowing how to both minister to someone and be there for someone, but also encouraging them in getting help psychologically, whatever that means and, and how good that is. So that stigma is starting to change. And I wonder with the next generation, if that will become normal, if that will become like the empowered church at, you know, so to speak, where people are living these full lives and, and they have this incredible knowledge and they can have both. So that's why I love the, um, God as an acronym for good orderly direction, right? Because it's like direction only happens when you're moving in it, right? You can't have, you know, true. um, and, and so that direction, right. Is like, if you're praying to God, if you're praying to good orderly direction, great outdoors, group of drunks, whatever you want to call it, um, <laughs> whatever it is, it requires you to have momentum to start moving. Like, like something can be directed if it's moving, if there's momentum. Mm -hmm. And so moving in a direction that, you know, moving in the right direction, whatever that direction is, um, and typically good orderly direction comes for me in the form of mentors and people I trust and intuition and, um, you know, watching other people, um, that when you do that, that kind of, that, that allows you to do, to make the changes. It's very difficult to make a change standing still, um, which mm -hmm. just standing there and asking for help and then not doing anything would be, you know, would be standing still. Yeah. That's even it's something I'm a, um, a worship leader and, and that's one of the things that we actually tell people whenever you're exercising your faith, you're believing for something to change. You're believing that God is going to heal you of whatever or your friend or, you know, whatever you're asking for in prayer, as we're up singing, one of the things we'll even say to people is like, don't just sit in your seat. So stand up. And if you are praying for something to change, if you are wanting something to change, do something different than what you would normally do. Stand up, walk, you know, lift your hand, do just, do just start by doing something 
outside of what feels comfortable to you. And that will actually get you moving forward. And I've seen that change a lot of mentalities, break a lot of people out of a fog. You know, it's, it's the first step towards, you know, again, that surrender. I mean, there's neuroscience behind it, right? There's a guy who wrote a book called Atomic Habits and um, I believe he has a podcast and a website and all sorts of things that are interesting, but it's, there's all sorts of neuroscience behind it too. Like you can link moving your body in a different direction or changing because your, your brain has to work to do something different. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. carving out a different neural pathway and all of these things, right? Like you can take um, religion, spirituality, you can take, um, you know, different psychology, you can take, you know, coaching, you can take whatever it is and you can mix it all in a pot and use that as the thing that fuels whatever it is, however you want it to look. And I think that that's what you've been able to do. I mean, you, you, you started to go, Oh, oh okay. Like I can, people are, cha- these people are changing. I, I want to change this thing and I have access to it. And I'll try. Right. And that's, that's, that's scary. And, um, and also super rewarding. And I've, I've been able to watch you on that journey and watch the change and really watch the narrative, like interesting, your narrative about how you grew up has changed. And like the, not because any, because you did the work around it to kind of, like you said, like marinate in it, digest it, and then come to, a conclusion that works for what you want to, how you want to move forward. Like, is the story based on what they did or is the story based on like this? And I say story, like narrative of how we describe our lives. Is it based on this idea that this person was evil and doing something to hurt me? Or is it based on this, this idea that this person was sick and grew up in a rough you know, had their own trauma that they didn't de- deal with, which was their responsibility. However, they didn't do it. They didn't for whatever reason. And now I've been passed down. That's unfortunate. However, it's my responsibility. Like there's these ways that we shift how we talk about these things that make such an enormous difference. Um, they call it narrative therapy, um, where you actually work through this stuff. And it's really fascinating to me because this year, right. I turned 15 years sober this year. Mm -hmm. I did some narrative therapy work and changed the narrative in my own story in ways that I, I mean, I, I, I've been speaking about my story for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, um, much of it is just kind of ingrained. It's not something I think about. It's just like, Oh, this is what happened. And in the way that I had kept that story, the way that I was telling it just as automatic, not thinking about it was contributing unbeknownst to me to feelings that I had. And who knew I had no, idea, you know, and just doing that, just working through that to change the narrative and to shift even these little pieces. I find when I talk about it or when I change it, or when I think about it, I actually feel differently because if you tell my story one way and you tell my story another way, it's, I mean, it feels different hearing it. It feels different telling it. And I think that's what happened for you. You shifted from a victim of, and and I don't even mean that in a bad way, but like, literally like, this is what happened to me to, this is what happened to me. Here's what I did. Yes. I would completely agree with you. I think that that I am really glad that you bring that up too, because that was the realization on the people that I'd seen stay stuck 
they were still the victim. And I did not know how to break out of that because you just, it's like, you feel like you're in this washing machine cycle of hurt and you do just start going in this circle and you're like, oh, but I feel pain, but this you're like, and they this did do fair. that, <laughs> right? Like yes. that is what happened. And you're right. And it, and it feels unfair, but I think another moment that I felt really released and where I find a lot of empowerment from is by is forgiveness. And and when I say forgiveness, it's so funny. I think of what is that? Just friends on a Ferris. Forgiveness is more than saying sorry. You know that? <laughs> no. no? Oh my gosh. Hopefully people are laughing. Okay. So uh, just friends with Ryan Reynolds on a Ferris plays this like crazy rock star who's in love with him. And she writes this song called forgiveness. I'm going to send it to you and then you'll laugh. Okay. And then I'll laugh. Yes. Yeah. It's okay. You don't have to laugh now. Um, but every time I say forgiveness, that's where my mind goes. And I'm like, Oh God. Um, but in times where I feel like I felt the most stuck in that washing machine cycle, I got to the point where you know, and for me, I, for me, it was prayer, right? It was, it was connecting with God and going, God, please do not hold what these people have done to me against them. I, I bless them and I release them and I forgive them. And it didn't come from saying it to their face. It didn't come from getting an apology. And I had to say it at certain points in my life over and over and over yeah. again. I mean, for weeks mm-hmm. and weeks and weeks until something settled in my heart where what I want, like where I wanted to be finally connected with, with that, you know, it, it somehow made the shift and there's, you know, the Lord's prayer. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> right. I was going to say growing up as <laughs> in a Catholic school. Yes, I do. There's the piece that says, and forgive, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I heard a sermon about that. And what that piece means is as you're praying, it's forgive me as much as I have delegated forgiveness to other people. That was like an oh shit moment in my life. I was like, wait, what? No, 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 no. I'm not praying that. No, absolutely not. Because obviously I have so been like, I am not forgiving you and you wronged me. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, like raise your hand if you have not harbored that in your heart because you just feel so unfair. Like, no way. Whenever I read, I prayed that or whenever I I heard that sermon, I was like, I have some pretty mega work to do to release some people because if that's the level that we're supposed to be at, I am nowhere near that. I am nowhere near that. And how do you even get there? And, you know, I feel like just through... Therapy helps you work through the unfair and Mm. helps you be heard and, and be acknowledged. And, and I think even my therapist just going, you know what? That wasn't right. I am so sorry. It was just like, oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Well, that's all I needed. Uh, But, but you don't like hearing that. Like, I remember hearing people talk about that and being like, well, I don't need to hear that. I know it wasn't right. And I know, you know, like, I don't need you to be sorry. And like, there's, but there's something transformative doing the therapy that you can't, again, that you can't really explain. Like if you just say that, 
you're like, I don't need to pay someone to (laughs) tell me that it was wrong and then tell me they're sorry. Like, why the fuck am I paying you for that? Right. Like that's what I would think, you know? And it's like, why is that healing? Like I I can, I can ask my best friend to just do that. Right. And, (laughs) but it's more than that. It's more like there's, there's, Mm -hmm. there's, I don't know. It's just, it's super hard to explain why those things feel differently or why that shift happens. Oh, you know, and, and it's gradual, but it it is, you know, it is, it is powerful. I think it's kind of like, look, so many people talk about the powers of, of doing talk therapy and mm-hmm. some of this shit, you just got to trust that it's going to, that there's something to it. Even if when people explain it, you're like, why am I paying to talk to someone? Well, and I think you said it, it it was, it's the journey to get there. So it's not necessarily even the fact that they just said that it's whatever talk therapy journey you take to get there. So, you know, you, you start the conversation, it's topical. You start with one thing, it might dovetail into another thing, or maybe not, maybe it stays on topic, but you're, my therapist taught me that your brain will bring up trauma and will bring up the areas that need to be dealt with because your brain wants to survive and your body wants to survive and is, is, is programmed to do so. And so the things that need to be dealt with immediately will come straight up. And that's even how EMDR is. It'll heal in the layers that it needs to. You don't have to think of that. It will pop up and can be dealt with. And so that's what talk therapy Which is also the shithole part because you're like, God, this is... (laughs) Good Lord. Um, And once you're able to release it, then it's... Then, I mean, again, not that you forget... You know, I mean, I've forgotten some things after, you know, from healing I have, but there are things that I'll never forget, but it doesn't, the, the power isn't held over me anymore. And I think that's the whole point of it. And one of our podcast guests, I don't remember who, but I just remember it had stuck out. They had, they had said at one point that forgiveness was something that they had been, you know, taught was important and, and they did not feel that it was important. They felt like you do not, you have no obligation to forgive anyone. And it really stuck with me. I think it was, I mean, it was a while ago. And I remember sitting there thinking about it while I was producing the episode. And, and, you know, I really chewed on that thinking, well, is it necessary? And, you know, just wanted to kind of sit with her perspective on it. Obligation. Obligation. Right. And, and so she had not forgiven that whoever it was in in their life because, because of feeling that obligation, which I understand. And I also have learned in my journey that there is, you do not have any obligation to forgive anyone. That is absolutely correct. But the unseen of what happens and what release it, the toxicity that leaves your body and your mind and your spirit whenever you are truly able to just release somebody. And when I say release somebody, I mean, you do not hold anything they've done against them, meaning you want no payback. You do not, you, you basically are not holding it. It's, Hey, it's forgotten in regards to like, there is nothing that you've done against me anymore. I I bless you and I release you the freedom that has come from that, but also knowing that I myself am an imperfect human and do need that. Also, I need that from people as well. And if I can't do that to somebody, no matter the situation, then how could I ever ask that from somebody else? Because people, you know, people say this all the time. Well, you're such a good person. You're such a good person. Well, what does good mean? What, what, 
who determines that? I mean, is it my definition of good is different from somebody else's definition of good? Who's who's the keeper of what a good person is? Well, we all have, you know, there's a kind of a general way we should live morally, right? That's morally acceptable. Well, a collective agreement. Collective agreement. But everybody's definition of good is going to be different. Everyone's definition of what something should be is going to be different because we are all human. So I think that's where, again, kind of where my reliance on God really came from, because I thought, who am I to, I can have my ideas of things, but who am I to really honestly regulate the entire universe? Like, who am I? (laughs) And like, good luck trying, right? (laughs) I tried to regulate my own life and it didn't work. Um, so I don't know that the, that aspect of forgiveness, that was really neat. And I'm, I think it's a great lesson in humility and doing like a good check on myself. If I can't release somebody, then ego check right now, because it's not all about me and I don't have it all together. And there's no hope for me continuing to go forward and heal if I cannot bless and release somebody. And it might take a while. But if you, but I have to be taking steps towards it and like working it hard every single day in order to actually honestly be, be free and be in line with the way that I know I should be living. And um, I don't know, that's been phenomenal for me to be able to learn. I want to, um, I want to end with a quote that kind of, um, that, that encompasses something I heard recently by uh, Jewel, the, the singer, which I think is, you know, strangely funny, um, in an interview recently. And, and it kind of goes along with the forgiveness. It's like the, it's both sides of the same coin with forgiveness, which is, she said, um, and I've been thinking a lot about this, that when you tolerate the intolerable, you become sick, Mm -hmm. you become internally sick. When you tolerate the intolerable, you become toxic. And so I think that, the the story here that we that that I want to conclude with and that the, the theme is really about how there's a way to release yourself from the bondage of the intolerable that's making you sick from the from whatever it is the victimization the things that are coming at you you know again the intolerable there's a way to release that while still no longer tolerating it. There's a way to forgive without tolerating the toxic. And I think learning that is something that most of us learn in adulthood, in some sort of life recovery, right? In some sort of um, therapeutic way, whatever the therapy, it could be a conversation with a friend, um, but some sort of therapeutic way is that on the one hand, you have the forgiveness, which is important. And on the other hand, you have, the fact that you don't tolerate the intolerable because you will be sick. And, um, and I think that's a really important message. I just love that she, I mean, her, her, if, if any of you heard her recent interview, um, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's so inspiring. And, and that was one of those things that stick with me is that when I stopped tolerating the intolerable, I got better. And it didn't mean that I didn't have to forgive or, you know, move on, but it did mean that I had to stop tolerating the intolerable. I'm so glad that you said that because that's another thing that I feel like the church can get better at is forgiving somebody does not mean letting them back in your life. You can, you absolutely can and should 
100% get somebody out of your life if they are toxic to you. And, you know, by toxic, I obviously mean abusive or, you know, whether whatever that is, verbal, physical, whatever it is. If you are, find yourself spiraling, spiraling and cannot function with somebody in your life, do not have them in your life. And that could mean a period of time or that right. could mean forever. And that has been an area where I've had to grow and you've you've watched it. You've gotten to watch me make those decisions and they're hard decisions. But in the end, I knew it was the right thing and it was confirmed beyond confirmed. And thank God I've had an incredible community of people around me who've been able to speak into my life and go, yes, you're right on. This is correct. This I see that this isn't good for you because when you're in that mentality, even if you are releasing somebody and forgiving somebody, you can, because all of a sudden your heart starts getting that relief and you're like, okay, I'm doing the right thing all of a sudden this little love can creep back in and you're like, but I do love them. Okay. It's fine. And it's not fine. It's not okay. It's not okay to ever be treated incorrectly and abused or, or treated in a toxic manner and put, it is not okay to put yourself in a toxic situation. you like, no one deserves that. And that's not love. And you, and you will get sick. Even if, even if you think it's okay. And even if all those things in the world, if ultimately your goal is to heal and be well, Mm-hmm. tolerating the intolerable makes you sick and all of the rest of it doesn't matter. No matter what anyone says, if you're sick, you're sick. Yeah, That's it. And so those are the decisions that we have to make, but I, I am just in awe of your progress and, and your willingness to talk about this stuff. I mean, this podcast uh, episode is so timely. It is, you know, you are making a huge transition. You are uh, leaving us to move on to your next chapter and, and it's going to be exciting and amazing. And you're going to take all this stuff and you're going to integrate back into the world and get to teach people that, you know, about recovery who don't know about it. And that's the goal, right? The goal is to, is, is to change the narrative and change the stigma. And, and so I just want from the bottom of my heart, I want, you to know, I love you and I'm so grateful for you. It's so grateful for what you've done for this podcast. It is literally not possible without you literally like no, no courage to change. No, no, Christiana, no courage to change that <laughs> hands down from from A to Z you've, you've made it a possibility. And so I just, from the bottom of my heart, love you and thank you so, so much. And, uh, we'll have you back and, and, uh, hear about all the updates. Thank you. I so appreciate that. It's been the most incredible ride. I mean, the ride of my life truly. And and I love that you said it's time to integrate back into the world and go because it's the mission is still clear and still in my heart and still, you know, it's 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 time to talk about it and it's time to spread the spread the word and get people talking about it and breaking that stigma by just that daily walk. So thank you and thank you for everything and all the opportunities and for teaching me so much and Thank you for all of our podcast guests, you know, for teaching me so much as well. It, it's, it's really, I feel like when I came here, I feel like I started replacing parts of my heart with so many different people's stories and, you know, it's something I'll really carry with me for forever. And it's just been the ride of my life and the time of my life. And I love you. And I not going to say this is my last podcast <laughs> interview with you. I can't, I can't even no. 
I can't deal with that right now. <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be a see you again soon in the podcast realm. And thank you for everything. I love you. I just, I just love you so much. You, you've just meant the world to me. Likewise, likewise. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.